Hello, and welcome to this emergency edition of the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Drew. Friday morning, the Supreme Court released an opinion in the Dobbs abortion case overturning Roe v. Wade. The court ruled that there is no constitutional right to an abortion, counter to the precedent for the past 49 years. The decision was 6-3 in favor of Mississippi, with five of the conservatives voting to overturn Roe. Chief Justice John Roberts argued in a concurring opinion that the court could have sided with Mississippi in banning abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy without overturning Roe altogether. Justice Samuel Alito authored the majority opinion, as was the case with the leaked draft in May. The three liberals on the court issued a rare three-justice-authored dissent. We're going to have weeks and months to unpack the political fallout and on-the-ground effects of this, but let's begin with the legal arguments. And here with me to do that is 538 senior writer and legal reporter Amelia Thompson-DeVoe. Welcome to the podcast, Amelia. Hey, Galen. Hey. So what are the nuts and bolts of this decision? Should we call it a 5-4 decision or a 6-3 decision? And what was the reasoning on behalf of the majority? Yeah, so it's funny. I've already seen different outlets reporting this as a 6-3 decision and a 5-4 decision. And, you know, in a sense, it's really both. So six of the justices, including Chief Justice John Roberts, said that Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban is constitutional. They agreed on that. What John Roberts did not agree on was that the court needed to take the next step and overturn Roe versus Wade. His view, Roberts's view, which we can talk more about in a little bit, was basically that the court doesn't have to do the most extreme thing that's possible. And in fact, you know, under the principle of judicial restraint, shouldn't. And that there was a way to uphold the Mississippi law without actually getting rid of a 49-year precedent. Alito and the other four conservatives clearly did not agree. Um, and Alito wrote a long opinion, basically arguing that the constitutional right to abortion has never existed. Abortion is not protected under the Constitution. And so Roe and the ruling that came after it, Casey versus Planned Parenthood, were completely wrong. And so that there is really an obligation, you know, you feel this sort of sense of obligation in the ruling to correct this wrong and to overturn Roe. So that's the outcome of this opinion. Roe v. Wade is overturned, and the majority opinion is that it was wrongly decided in the first place. However, the conservative justices, even beyond Roberts, disagree over what exactly this means. Of course, Kavanaugh and Thomas both wrote concurring opinions that interpreted what overturning Roe v. Wade means in different ways. So where are the cleavages amongst the conservatives at this point? You see Kavanaugh in his concurring opinion, which is just from him, so this is just representing his viewpoint, articulating some of the things that he said during the oral argument last December, which is basically this idea that, like, the Constitution is neutral on abortion, which means that it doesn't protect abortion, but there is also not a, a constitutional obligation to outlaw 
abortion. And that really the mistake was the courts getting into this at all. That this is an issue that the Constitution just has nothing to say about, and therefore states should be able to work this out. But he was sort of clearly trying to say, we're not making abortion illegal everywhere. Like he says that in so many words in the opinion. And he's making it clear that he at least does not think that the Constitution outlaws abortion, which is, you know, a question um, that I think people were expecting to potentially come back to the Supreme Court at some point, given the speed with which this court overturned Roe. I mean, there has been a conservative majority on the court for a while. There's been a highly conservative majority on the court since 2018, when um, Justice Anthony Kennedy retired, but they haven't had this conservative supermajority for very long, less than two years, and Roe is already gone. So I think there will be a lot of questions about what comes next, both in the field of abortion and other liberal precedents. And Kavanaugh is clearly trying to sort of put some boundaries on that and to say that he at least doesn't see this stretching really far, basically into liberals' worst nightmares. And so is that sort of putting the kibosh on this idea of fetal personhood, at least for now, that a fetus is protected under the Constitution as a person and perhaps has the same rights? And I think some people were thinking that that was the next avenue that anti-abortion activists and lawmakers might pursue. I mean, there's language to that effect already in some anti-abortion statutes. So, you know, whatever Kavanaugh wants, this is an issue that is going to be challenged and litigated. I do think Kavanaugh was sort of trying to take pains to say, we are just overturning Roe. We are not making a statement on these sort of many consequences that everyone I think is aware will come if states are allowed to ban abortion. And he, it appears, does not, at least does not want to signal at this moment that he wants to go further. You know, mm -hmm. I think it's kind of dangerous to predict where this court is going to go, because if you had asked me four years ago if I would be on a podcast in 2022 talking about Roe being overturned, I think I would I would not have taken a bet that that would happen. Um, but, um, you right, know, we all kind of assumed they would take the Roberts approach and sort right, of slow roll this hollow it out. You know, we can talk about what Roberts wanted, but he basically wanted to sort of do this more slowly to let more abortion bans come in. He wanted to get rid of a fundamental part of the Casey ruling, which came after Roe, which would make it much easier for states to ban abortion earlier in pregnancy, but it wasn't going to get rid of Roe entirely. So here we are. Um, a lot is going to depend on what state lawmakers do and the kinds of legal challenges that are brought. But the message of Kavanaugh's concurrence, I think, is that he's trying to sort of say, you know, we're really handing this back to the people. Like we are, he's sort of trying to almost like diminish the court's responsibility in all of this. I mean, obviously the court is, is playing a huge role and everyone knows that. But he's sort of saying, you know, really this isn't our issue to decide. And so we are giving it back to the people who need to be deciding it. 
On the other end of the spectrum from Kavanaugh or Roberts is Justice Clarence Thomas. He wrote in his concurring opinion, quote, In future cases, we should reconsider all of this court's substantive due process precedents, including Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell. Those address in that order, contraception, same-sex sex, and same-sex marriage. Is that belief held widely on the court or beyond Thomas himself? I think he only authored his concurring opinion alone. But is there any indication that there are other justices that view the world similarly? There isn't right now. I mean, Thomas wrote this opinion alone, as you suggested. And in his majority opinion, Alito actually explicitly says, we're not calling other precedents that came out of a similar line of reasoning as Roe into question. Because at stake in Roe is something different. It's the state's interest in potential human life, which has a different legal weight. And so nothing we're doing in this is unsettling, you know, the seminal ruling that gave Americans the, the right to contraception and the rulings you mentioned that have to do with same-sex sex and same-sex marriage. So Alito says that explicitly. And then Thomas, in his concurring opinion, is like, yeah, um, so I agree that this ruling is not calling into question those precedents. But guys, we really need to reconsider those precedents because they seem to rest on pretty faulty assumptions. And, you know, it's interesting because, like, Thomas has been in this position for years and years and years where he will say, he will write these dissents where he's proposing incredibly extreme things. And so, you know, on the one hand, you kind of look at this and you're like, okay, this is Thomas. He's very conservative. He has idiosyncratic views. He's not speaking for the other conservatives. No one else signed on to his opinion. On the other hand, Thomas and Alito, not too, you know, not too far in the past, were staking out this position way on the right of the court where they were complaining about how the other conservative justices weren't moving fast enough and they were dissenting when Justice Anthony Kennedy would switch over to the liberals. And now we're in a situation where Alito just wrote a majority opinion overturning Roe. And yesterday, Thomas wrote the majority opinion in a really big case expanding the reach of the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms. So while I do think, you know, people who read that Thomas opinion and freak out and say the court is coming for Obergefell and they're coming for birth control tomorrow, like, I think that's an overreaction. I kind of wouldn't downplay anything that Thomas says right now, because clearly this idea is in the air. And it's something that Thomas cares enough about to have written this opinion. And he is in a position on the court that he didn't used to be in. He's much more influential than he used to be. And so, you know, I don't think this is going to happen tomorrow or next year. Um, there isn't evidence that the other conservatives are like, you know, yeah, let's really, let's go get all of these other precedents. We think they're wrong. But that doesn't mean that we won't be in a situation in the not too distant future where, where we're talking about potential challenges to those. Okay, so that is where the conservatives sit. Of course, the liberals disagreed, disagreed vehemently. Ultimately, their dissent has little bearing on the law of the land. But what did they have to say? 
So they authored their dissenting opinion together, which is pretty rare, and it shows the depth of their concern and anger about this opinion. Ultimately, there are only three of them. They're in a serious minority. But their dissent was basically saying, this is a huge deal. This is the removal of a fundamental right, as they see it. And that it's going to have really serious consequences. There's one quote from the beginning of the dissent that stands out. They said the decision says that from the very moment of fertilization, a woman has no rights to speak of. A state can force her to bring a pregnancy to term, even at the steepest personal and familial costs. So that's very extreme language. That is saying essentially that the Supreme Court is allowing states to force women to bear children. So that's kind of where they're at. Um, That's the state of the Supreme Court right now. And, you know, even in Alito's majority opinion, like clearly the justices are very upset with each other. Um, He spent a lot of the majority opinion sort of going after arguments that were made in the dissent. And we saw something similar in yesterday's guns rulings. This is a, a deeply, deeply divided court. Today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. All right. So those are the differing legal opinions on the court and in today's ruling. But now let's talk about how this changes things on the ground. So what is the situation for legal abortion in America starting today? Uh, It's fluid. Um, So I just want to caveat that as we are recording this, it is literally changing. So this is the situation um, as of now around 1245. It could be different by the time you listen. But basically, 13 states were ready for this to happen. They had laws that are called trigger laws that are triggered if Roe versus Wade is overturned and abortion is all but completely banned in those states. 
The mechanism of the trigger is a little bit different in in some of the states, so it hasn't gone into effect in all of them, but three states are automatic. That's South Dakota, Kentucky, and Louisiana. So abortion was illegal in those states the minute row was reversed, and state lawmakers have taken the steps they need to take to make abortion illegal in Oklahoma and Missouri. There will be more states that will ban abortion in the coming days. Um, It's Wyoming, Utah, North Dakota, Arkansas, and Mississippi, um, just to be completist. And um, there are three more states who where the trigger goes into effect after 30 days. That's Texas, Tennessee, and Idaho. So it'll be a little longer for them. Although worth noting that Texas has a six-week abortion ban on the books already. So, um, you know, it's not like abortion is completely legal there right now. Anyway, so that is the state right now. I should add that I suspect there are a couple more states that will move to ban abortion pretty quickly. Indiana is a state with a lot of abortion restrictions, and their legislature is coming back into session for a different reason on July 6th. And I would not be surprised if an abortion ban comes out of that session. And then Nebraska's governor said that he would bring, he would try to bring the legislature back into session to pass an abortion ban if Roe were overturned. So those states, I think, could quickly be added to the tally. Um, And then there are some other states, including Alabama, that have abortion bans that were passed you know, somewhat recently that have been tied up in the courts because they violated Roe, those are presumably going to go into effect soon. So all told, I think the conventional wisdom was that if Roe v. Wade is overturned, abortion would be banned in half the country. Is that about correct when it comes to the numbers? Well, so it depends a little bit on what you mean by banned. Um, So abortion will be completely banned in about 16 states, I would guess, within the next month or two. Several other states have six-week abortion bans that are going to go into effect. And then other states have these pre-row bans. So you could add them to my list of 16 states, which there are five of them, so it would bring the the number to, to around 20. And those are really interesting because those are examples of states that had older bans on abortion, some of them are really old from like the 19th century, that they just never repealed after Roe. They didn't try to enforce them. So the law was just hanging out. It wasn't doing anything. Um, And now in theory, those could be enforced. And Michigan's governor has actually been trying to prevent the Michigan pre-Roe abortion ban from going into effect. And it's, it's temporarily held up in the courts. So I don't know, you know, to what extent we'll see kind of other fighting over those laws, but it's just a little bit complicated because it's not like those were laws that were passed recently and, you know, state lawmakers may not be entirely on the same page about whether they want to keep them. That's basically it. So it's like, I think it's a little bit less than half. It depends if you count a state like Florida, which passed a 15-week abortion ban earlier this year. There are some questions about whether that violates the state's constitution, but it's set to go into effect in July. And, you know, we'll have to see what other states do. Um, I think certainly we could see half the states banning abortion at, at least earlier than they were allowed to under Roe, but not all of those will be total abortion bans, at least not immediately. And we'll also, over the coming months, see if 
in Republican-controlled states like Florida, that 15-week abortion ban stands. And if lawmakers or activists in the states want to ban it earlier, I know looking at public opinion that in Florida that wouldn't be super popular, but I think it's still an open question for Republicans and also places like Arizona. I know Glenn Youngkin in Virginia suggested that he'd be bringing mm -hmm. forth a 15-week abortion ban. So this will be also become an intra-party fight for Republicans in the coming months. Totally. And I think it's going to be really interesting because um, if you look at the polling, something like a 15-week abortion ban is much more popular than a total abortion ban. I mean, some of the, the laws, many of the bans that are going into effect right now have almost no exceptions. They don't even have exceptions for rape and incest. And that's really unpopular. There are very, very few Americans, um, between 10 and 15%, that want abortion to be banned in all cases. But that's really where some states are moving. Um, but I think there has been some hesitation among Republican lawmakers in some states, like more purple states, to go all the way. We saw that with Florida and Arizona both passing 15-week abortion bans earlier this year when you know, other states were passing six-week abortion bans, like the one that went into effect in Texas last fall. And it seemed like, you know, we could be seeing a wave of Texas copycat laws. And instead, we saw some Texas copycat laws, but also some 15-week abortion bans. And so I do think there will be kind of a push and pull between this sense that a 15-week abortion ban might be more palatable to a broader range of voters and the demands of, you know, the people people within the party who who really don't want a 15-week abortion ban, they just want abortion to be banned, and they, they will want legislators to move in that direction. Yeah, we started talking a bit about public opinion here, and, you know, Alito took pains to write, you know, public opinion shouldn't have bearing on the court, we shouldn't be worried about the political fallout of our decisions. But of course, beyond the steps of the Supreme Court, uh, that will all matter for politics, for, you know, what laws actually end up getting passed. We have talked almost ad nauseum on this podcast about how polling on abortion is complicated because people answer the questions differently depending on how you ask them, depending on whether you bring up Roe the precedent or whether you just ask about a number of weeks. What can we say about how this opinion compares to public opinion? Well... Most Americans, a majority of Americans, have consistently said they do not want the court to overturn Roe versus Wade. You know, it's not like an overwhelming majority. It's, you know, around 60, 65 percent. So in that sense, this is not a popular move. I will add that I don't think most Americans know what Roe did. I see that question as more about, do you want to keep the status quo on abortion? Um, which again, the Supreme Court is changing. So, you know, there, there could definitely be fallout. But it is complicated because, you know, the, the states that are implementing bans are more conservative states. Um, so there, you know, there is the possibility that there's just there actually is more appetite among those voters um, to have more restrictive abortion laws. And when you ask Americans about something like a 15 week abortion ban, it is more popular. Um, and I mean, I, I put an asterisk on that because, as you were saying, like Americans just do not know much about abortion and their responses to poll questions are often contradictory. But you know, I, I do think that this 
has the potential to spark the kind of backlash that we would not have seen from the ruling that Roberts wanted, where they just upheld the 15-week ban but didn't go further, um, simply because the laws that are being passed in states already in response to Roe being overturned are so extreme and really outside the mainstream of what people want. Yeah, I mean, looking at some of the polling from Gallup, they ask about specific trimesters. And so, you know, 60% of Americans say that they think abortion should be mostly legal in the first trimester, 28% in the second trimester, and only 13% in the third trimester. Of course, Americans also, a majority of them said that they wanted to uphold Roe v. Wade. Roe v. Wade protected abortion until fetal viability, essentially, or with the Casey add-on. Uh, until fetal viability, which is beyond the first trimester. So on one hand, they were maybe saying they want abortion to be more restricted than it had been. And so would like in a technical way be in support of overturning Roe v. Wade, but in a practical sense of do you want it overturned or not? The answer was no. At this point, like do those distinctions matter or does this sort of trigger a backlash just in a almost in a symbolic way? Yeah, I mean... This is one of the only rulings that most Americans know. It's a huge symbolic move to overturn Roe. And so, you know, I think this is going to provoke a response that we don't normally see to Supreme Court opinions. And it's especially going to provoke a response because the ruling doesn't end things, it really just begins them now, because now states have to respond, we're going to see what happens, there's going to continue to be news coverage. And so, you know, I think like the weight of what's happening will have a big impact. The question is just what that impact is and what it drives people to do. There have been questions about whether it will motivate Democrats to vote in the midterms, whether it will shake up some of the big midterm races. There are some differences of opinion on the 538 staff about um, how likely this is to be a really big game changer in the midterms. I really think we have to see what happens because this is an issue that Americans have tried. It just really, when you talk to sort of most people about this, they just don't like thinking about this issue. And that's why the polling is so confusing. They don't know that much about abortion. They sort of want it to be available in a general sense. But when you ask them specific questions, they'll say contradictory things. And so now this opinion is, this ruling is really going to, I think, potentially force people to think about abortion in a way that they haven't, um, for some people maybe in their entire lives. And I just don't know what that is going to bring. And I think it will also just depend on how far these bans stretch. You know, there's been some some discussion about how the way that a pregnancy is defined in some of the bans could have implications for forms of birth control like IUDs. It could have implications for um, fertility treatments. And so if there are some of those, you know, kind of that ripple effect into things that people don't associate with abortion and then are less controversial, then again, I think there's more potential for anger. Um, But again, there are a lot of other things going on in the country. People are really worried about the economic situation. And the forces of partisanship are are pretty strong. We talk about that a little bit on the podcast. So um, I think it's really an open question at this point how Americans will respond. 
Yeah. And, you know, we're going to be talking about the political fallout from this going forward. We're going to chat again on Monday when we normally record our podcast. Before I let you go, the Supreme Court also ruled 6-3 yesterday on Thursday, basically striking down a New York state law that was pretty restrictive on terms of letting people carry handguns in public. Essentially, people had to prove that they had a specific need for the handgun above the general public's concern. We, at the end of Supreme Court terms, generally aggregate all the data and look at sort of how, where the court is ideologically, how liberal or conservative it may be. And usually we talk at the end of the term to assess how quickly is the court moving? Has it moved to the left a little bit or to the right a little bit? I know that given all of the news, you have not had time to compile that data, but well, and there's still cases. And there's still there are a bunch, bunch of cases they haven't decided true. yet. There's a big school prayer case. There's a big case about the EPA. Like they really, I really was expecting this opinion to come on the last day of the term. So they are, you know, they, they've still got, they've still got business to do. I'll be honest. It did catch me off guard. Um, what a Friday. But can we start to say at this point, the general direction of the court, even if we can't sort of paint the full quantitative picture that we usually do? I mean, this is an incredibly historically conservative court. Um, I can say that with confidence. And I think, you know, we can talk more about this um, when the Supreme Court's term is done and we do have those numbers. But I think we're increasingly moving into territory where the metrics that we use to evaluate how conservative the court is are not capturing how far to the right it's moving because they just look at how sort of people vote on the court vote relative to each other, but they're not looking at sort of how conservative the cases are that are coming to the court or how the court is diverging from public opinion, for example. And there was a, a really smart study that came out recently um, by some political scientists that showed basically how the court has become more conservative relative to public opinion since Justice Amy Coney Barrett joined. And I thought that was a really smart way to look at this because it does seem like there's been kind of a discontinuity and the court is moving really fast. I mean, this is the thing, like John Roberts is a very, very conservative justice. He's a very conservative person. And so the fact that he's looking at what just happened and saying, I think we should go slower, is a sign of just how fast this court is moving. And so all of that is really kind of hard to, to capture in the data that we're used to looking at because the Supreme Court doesn't usually move at this speed. And so, you know, yes, the court is very conservative. We will have more information. Um, but I think one of my big takeaways from the ruling today was just that, you know, this is this is no longer John Roberts' court. This is the ruling that will define probably, well, I mean, who knows what's going to happen, but this is a, a ruling that, that will be one of the defining opinions of his tenure. And he did not think it should have happened the way it did. And that is a big statement about how conservative his colleagues are and where they're taking the court. All right. Well, let's leave things there and pick them back up on Monday. But for now, thank you so much, Amelia. Thanks, Galen. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Chadwick Matlin is our editorial director. And Emily Vineski is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. 
If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.